When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast, where we analyze, discuss, and have a vigorous debate over all things history, mythology, philosophy, and where they intersect in our popular storytelling. As always, I am very excited to be here today. Dare I say that this is part two of a most bodacious podcast run that we are doing. Dare I say that we are going to continue our conversation from last week discussing the late 80s, early 90s pop culture phenomenon of Bill and Ted. And I gotta say, strange things are afoot in the Midnight Myth Podcast Studio. Yes, yes, they are. It's auspicious that we're uh, doing this podcast this week because we wanted to do Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure last week to kind of uh, nip at the heels of the Keanu fever that's really going around uh, around right now. But uh, this week, Alex Winter, who plays Bill S. Preston Esquire in the Bill and Ted franchise, announced that shooting has begun on uh, uh, Bill and Ted 3, Bill and Ted Face the Music. So it is on its way. Us Bill and Ted fans don't have to wait too much longer for the uh, highly, highly anticipated and long-awaited sequel. And I'm excited to see what happens because while this is almost the second half of a two-parter, uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey, which we'll focus on tonight, is a a sequel that goes in a wildly different direction than the original. One of the strangest, most out there and most left turn sequels of all time. And so this will be a very different podcast than last week's. Yeah. While I can say I completely respect that bogus journey did something like a hundred million, 90 degree turns away from that's that math made no sense. They did something completely in the opposite direction of Excellent Adventure. And I admire the fact that, that the studio was brave enough to greenlight a completely different picture than it did the first time around. It does not hold up as well, in my view. I feel like Excellent Adventure is that lightning in the bottle. 
and bogus journey was an attempt and a really good faith attempt to continue that narrative in a different direction. But for the purposes of like our mission at the midnight myth, there are some really interesting angles and things that we can talk about in bogus journey that weren't in excellent adventure. So I do think it's a very worthwhile project to look at this and try to understand in particular, some of the symbolism, which is all over the place in this movie. Absolutely. Uh, In the vein of excellent adventure, this movie has a lot more going on uh, in the creation of it, a lot more underneath its surface than you might expect from this kind of slacker buddy comedy. Um, It's a, it's a very surreal ride and a lot of fun. So I'm excited to talk about it, even though it may not hold up as well as Excellent Adventure. It may be a little bit of a mess. You can't help but admire the ambition of it. Totally. Um, yeah. I kind of wish they just made this one a full-on horror movie. Oh my God, right? I mean, it's I, it's pretty nightmare-fueling. And if they really just made this Bill and Ted's like bogus journey is nothing but them being ghosts and dealing with horror and didn't try to like shoehorn so much like slapstick comedy into it, I think it might have been a better movie. That might be an interesting exercise. Anyway, but in either event, I can't wait to talk about it. It's going to be a ton of fun. Um, Oh, just a fun thing, too. Yeah. We have a new shirt on our merch store. Yeah. Laurel designed. That's so fucking sweet. It's awesome. It's the midnight myth in rune form. Yeah. So we have been talking about Norse mythology in relation to a couple of uh, pieces on the podcast, in relation to game of Thrones and of course, Thor uh, in the Marvel cinematic universe. So we made a runic uh, logo t-shirt. It's not the actual runes for how you would do midnight myth, but uh, it's a runic font that looks like midnight myth. So you'll enjoy it. There are t-shirts, there are mugs and there are stickers stickers with this Midnight Myth logo on it. So uh, make sure you head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com and click shop. And that'll take you to our store. Also, I I don't mean to interrupt you, Laurel, but I just want to emphasize what a great job you did on that shirt. As soon as you designed it and said, should we put this up there? I immediately bought one of my own shirts for me. So guys, please go check out this shirt. I fucking love it. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's That's cool. Um, also, we're running a sale right now. We're running a, a little promotion for uh, early summer. Uh, we're recording this on the summer solstice. So of course, the promo code is solstice. So if you go to that web store, if you go to that merch store and you type in solstice at checkout, you'll get off 15%. Uh, So nice little promotion. And we're going to run that through July 6th. So make sure you get your merch, including those new runic t-shirts. And when you get the t-shirt, make sure to take a picture of it, send it over to us. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook at midnight myth podcast or our favorite place, Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. And uh, let us know how you look. We promise we'll share it. We'll give you a call out here on the podcast as well. Wonderful. Uh, A couple of other things to point out here at the beginning. Also on that website, www.midnightmyth.com, you're going to find extra content. There are blogs. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter where you'll get extra uh, content and uh, updates from us as we go. And you can find our Patreon, which is where you can support us for a small donation monthly in order to get additional content. Uh, so we do a monthly boomerangerang for supporters of $5 or more a month. Uh, but you can pledge at pretty much any level and get uh, a little perk, whether that's a discount on uh, the merch store, a shout out on the pod or extra episodes. So we would love to have your support. And we're so thankful for those of you who do support us already. You make this 
uh, so much easier. You make this feel so good. We love doing this podcast and it really helps to get a little extra scratch. Sweet. All right. Let's talk some bogus journey here. Where would you like to begin? I think uh, to begin, since this is a movie that came out uh, in 1993, a little while ago, a little recap. just a brief recap. Uh, obviously, there are going to be spoilers for uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey here, but we're going to talk so much about the influences that I think you'll still enjoy this podcast if you haven't seen it. Uh, so I just wanted to preface that. Yeah. So the movie starts in the future, perfect utopia that uh, was promised based off of the music of Wild Stallions and a bunch of students who are learning music through Rufus. And in comes Denomalous, and he's pretty much wants to remake the entire timeline so that he rules the future and no one else. He creates two evil robots, Evil Bill and Evil Ted, sends him into the past, and they summarily uh, ruined the relationship of Bill and Ted with the babes, the medieval princesses from the first movie. Yeah, Joanna and Elizabeth. He kills Bill and Ted. Uh, they kill Bill and Ted, and then they're intent in just trying to destroy anything and everything Bill and Ted. Meanwhile, Bill and Ted are trying to get to the Battle of the Bands, and if they could actually get to the Battle of the Bands and win it, there's a $25,000 cash prize, and they'll be on TV, but they haven't really done any practicing and aren't good at their instruments at this point. Um, in this come Bill and evil Bill and Ted and murder them. They die. They uh, give death a wedgie and run away. They try possessing Ted's father to convince the police that there are two evil robots masquerading as Bill and Ted. They go to a seance to try to convince now Ted's stepmother, Bill's ex-stepmother, um, that they were murdered and to stop the evil robots. They get banished into hell and eventually challenge death to a game. They win the challenge with death, get the opportunity to go back to life. They stop off at heaven to ask God they what to do. They have an audience with God, yeah. You know, and how that they can, you know, get God to help them. God points them in the way to the universe's greatest scientist, which is uh, two little troll-like creatures from Mars named Station. They all go to Earth. They build two good, good robots that then defeat the evil robots. Bill and Ted have a standoff with a Demolalist. Den Denomalist. Denomalist. Wow, I fluffed that. Dem Denomalist beat him. Uh, they use the time machine to become great at their instruments. They play in front of the entire world and world peace ensues because of the soothing music of, of wild stallions, which does also include station and death as members of the band. Absolutely. Along with the 15th century babes and scene. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, it was a good little refresher for those of us who maybe haven't seen it in a little bit. Um, but yeah, just from that, uh, summary. It's a reminder of how wacky and wild this movie is that the franchise that began with them going back in time to bring historical figures to a uh, history class presentation, uh, this pretty contained story, even though it went throughout time and space. Now we've expanded the world to include a journey to the afterlife a journey to a new plane of metaphysical existence. So it's a pretty wild uh, thing to happen to these characters next. And I think it's handled in a really interesting way. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. It is definitely handled in an interesting way. I mean, we now have time terrorists. Absolutely. Who are trying to use the power of time travel to rewrite the timeline so that they are the masters of the world. We have evil Bill and Ted going around murdering Bill and Ted and trying to rape, essentially, their girlfriends, which yeah. is really dark it's and gross. messed up. 
we have them as spirits possessing people. Like it, this movie is insane. And then in their pit, their stop off in hell, while in hell, they have to choose their own personal eternal torment in which it gets incredibly psychological, in which Satan comes up with some really scary, dark tortures for them that are just when watching them, even to date. I mean, to me, that's the best part of this movie. I I tend to agree with you. And it is really fucking weird. Yeah, it's really like quite scary. It's like they called in Terry Gilliam and like, hey, could you just make these scenes right here for us? I was thinking that today, actually. I'm glad you said that because at a lot of points, this does feel like a Terry Gilliam movie, um, but one that got finished. Sorry right. about it. But there's like an, uh, an essence of Ooh, time. Wait, hold on. Was that a cheap shot towards mm, Terry Gilliam? Just a little bit. Wow. Um, Shade on Terry G. There's like as, essence of time bandits. There's a little bit of, you know, a Monty Python-esque humor. And then there's, of course, the allusions to Swedish filmmaking that also influenced Monty Python. So it does feel like there is uh, a little bit of a Terry Gilliam stamp on this. And there was a British director who came in with that really dark comedy. And the earliest cuts of this film apparently were much darker and test audiences did not care for them. So it's interesting to see uh, the British influence on this movie. Yeah, but totally. To to kind of get started with analysis, uh, I just casually referenced that there's a Swedish influence uh, on the filmmaking here. And I want to start... I think with the biggest um, cinematic influence on this film, which is Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would venture to guess that if you are like a, f- a film lover, even if you haven't seen this movie, you have probably seen some of the imagery from it. Uh, the most um, referenced uh, visual cue from this movie is the portrayal of the Grim Reaper or the personification of death with the very white face and black cloak wrapped tightly around the face. You've probably seen that image of him kind of standing on the shore. Um, This film is classified as one of the greatest films ever made. This film, not Bill and Ted's? The Seventh Seal. Okay, sorry. Bill and Ted is considered the best film ever made, not one of. But um, So The Seventh Seal, considered one of the best films ever made, Uh, A classic of world cinema was made in 1957 by Bergman, who is a great Swedish filmmaker. Uh, It's a story about a knight who returns home from the Crusades uh, to find his landscape ravaged by the plague. And he encounters death on the shore and challenges him to a game of chess. uh, And his soul hangs in the balance. He says, if I can defeat you at chess... Uh, I can walk away unscathed and I must stay alive for the entirety of this chess game. Uh, I would highly recommend going out to see this movie or uh, snatching it off the Criterion Collection because it, it is a really striking film, but it's an unexpected influence on a slacker buddy comedy from the early 90s. You don't expect to see references to 1950s Swedish cinema uh, in your you know, dumb movie that you go out and see. Yeah. If I can interject, if you look at the images of the Grim Reaper from this movie, it is almost point for point, the exact image of the Grim Reaper that we see in bogus journey. Absolutely. It's, it's it's pretty much a mirror copy. The only real difference is the Grim Reaper from the seventh seal. Isn't carrying the actual sickle, the scythe. Yeah. The scythe, not sickle. Wow. 
They're kind of the same thing. Okay. They is, serve the same purpose. Yeah. Right. In which Bill and Ted, it is. But other than that, it's the black robe. It's the bald head. It's the paley it's the, white. Yeah. The white caked face makeup. The yeah. slow way of walking and moving. And that, that same, not only the same look, but the same feel and presence where clearly the actor is channeling from the seventh seal. Yeah. And clearly the writers were influenced by this, especially because they include a sequence of Bill and Ted uh, facing off with death uh, to win a game instead of chess. Uh, they get to choose the game. And so they start with battleship and death has the wonderful line of you have sunk in my battleship. That's my second favorite part of the movie. It's, it's tabletop game with death. It's a great sequence. And they, they beat him. They beat death at this game. And then he asks for the best of three or best of five or best of nine. And they get to play things like twister and clue and it's a really fun, really tongue-in-cheek sequence as they are parodying this, uh, uh, the seventh seal. Um, the seventh seal, the title, refers to a passage from the book of Revelation in which uh, death or the reaper figures uh, quite heavily as well. The line, uh, the passage from the book of Revelations uh, that it references is, quote, And when the lamb had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour, end quote. And a major theme of the seventh seal is the silence of God in the face of horrible things like the plague or like famine or war. Uh, Why doesn't God have an answer to these things? It's something that we explored on our Good Omens podcast uh, to an extent and something that is a, a major religious question for Uh, philosophers and theologians that people have to contend with. And, you know, maybe even if I may even go further back than that. Yeah. Because one of my reflections on bogus journey was that Bill and Ted challenge death and they defeat death. Yes. Right. So they defeat death at the games. And because of that, they get to go back to the living. And that is very much, at least from my perspective, a mythological reversal of how death operates um, continually within all frameworks of ancient myth. For example, the oldest written down ancient myth is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh meets his best friend Ankadu, who dies in a great battle against a giant. And this pisses Gilgamesh off and makes him so sad that he goes on a journey to try to discover immortality. He wants to cheat death because he can't handle the fact that his best friend died. And in this journey, he realizes there's no cheating death. Right. It's a constant refrain that you see. Odysseus makes his way into the underworld on his travels in the Odyssey. And he meets some of uh, he meets some great characters from Greek mythology, including one of his greatest friends, Achilles, who's just like, dude, get out of the underworld. We'll all get here. Eventually don't come here as one of the living that you can't get, you can't escape death. You can't cheat it. It is the one thing that we'll all get to. Uh, I can even think of Harry Potter and the story of the yeah. three hallows where three wizards, two try to treat death and lose. The other one can just evade death for a short period of time and then learns to greet death as a friend. What I find interesting about Bill and Ted from analyzing it from the lens of mythology is that death is conquered and defeated by them. Right. Yeah. You know, that's uh, amazing. That's something that I definitely wanted to talk about was this idea of cheating death 
which is something that we see in ancient mythology and something that we see all the way through to Final Destination, right? That you can't cheat death. And even if you do, even if you do succeed a little bit, you will lose in the end. In the seventh seal, uh, the knight uh, nearly wins this game of chess. He actually tricks death by uh, knocking over one of the pieces and then getting his family to safety. But then death restores the pieces, wins the game, and says, the next time we see each other, your time is up. Uh, and the same goes for all of ancient mythology. Even if you succeed a little bit, uh, you, you know, death is coming for you. Orpheus, you know, succeeds in getting uh, Eurydice all the way near the top, but then death claims her and then death claims him. So it's a constant refrain. Uh, one of the great, I think, examples of this in Greek mythology, uh, I think also has some other touch points in Bill and Ted's bogus journey, and that's the myth of Sisyphus. Now, Sisyphus, you likely remember, is the guy in the underworld who has to push a boulder up a hill for eternity. But his punishment uh, was meted out because he was successful in cheating death. Uh, twice, in fact. Uh, the most famous example of this is that he uh, met with Thanatos, who is the Greek personification of death, and tricked him into being tied up with his own chains and tied death to a tree. Uh, and then he escaped. But of course, he had to go down eventually. Uh, I think it's very similar to the idea of seeing the Grim Reaper in a wasteland and saying, dude, your shoe's untied, and then giving him a Melvin, as they call it, or a wedgie. A wedgie. <laughs> I love that. I, whoever called that a Melvin? Was that ever a thing? I have no I, idea. I'm going to do that for the rest of my life it now. It must be a regional thing, like John here in Philadelphia. Um, but so Sisyphus that is... John's called a Melvin? Sorry. Right. Sisyphus is ultimately uh, defeated. He is, is taken down to Tartarus. And his punishment is, of course, to roll a boulder up a hill every day for the rest of eternity, only to watch it fall all the way back down and have to start over again. And Tartarus uh, is interesting because everybody in Greek mythology seems to have their own personal torture that reflects uh, the things that they did wrong in life. But I think in Bill and Ted, we get a couple of moments where that's referenced. Uh, the first being when they do descend into hell uh, after they have tricked death by giving him a wedgie. Uh, they meet Colonel Oates, who is the military colonel who runs the Alaskan military school that Ted is uh, being threatened to be sent to again. And he tries to make them do eternity push-ups. Uh, and they're like, we no, can't no, do infinity. it. Infinity. Infinity push-ups. I don't think I could do infinity push-ups. <laughs> yeah, I can't even do like two push-ups. So I don't, uh, I don't even know how I would start uh, with infinity push-ups. So that feels like a Sisyphean um, punishment. But then afterwards, like you referenced before in the recap, uh, they split up and both meet a personal hell, something that feels like it is harping on their greatest fears from childhood, the guilt that they have buried deep within them. Uh, for Bill, it's, you know, kissing his granny. and Or refusing, the shame yeah, of refusing shame to kiss of refusing. your grandmother. Yeah. And for Ted, it's the shame of having stolen and eaten the candy from his brother Deacon's Easter basket and the uh, Easter bunny shows up in a just horrifying and harrowing puppet to oh, uh, torment him. Up. It is fucked 
up. And they're forced to choose one of these things. So I think in Greek mythology, not just of Sisyphus, but of Tantalus, who uh, you know was in a pool of water, but every time he reached down to drink, it would drain. And there was an apple just within his reach, but when he reached up for the apple, the branch uh, you know, got out of his reach. Uh, or any number of other, you know, figures who went to Tartarus and had their own, uh, you know, personal hell exacted upon them. So this kind of brings me to my central question about the bogus journey that I'm approaching this podcast with. And that is how to understand the role of death within the framework of bogus journey. And I want to preface this um, comment that I have or analysis, if you will, with a little preamble. One could certainly look at Bogus Journey and simply say, hey, man, it's the sequel to Bill and Ted. It's a fun kids movie. There's really no need to look at it any different than that. And I do think there's some wisdom in that outlook. And that's a certain level one might be able to enjoy the Bogus Journey. However, if you're here on the Midnight Myth, you're here because you do like to peel under the hood and see really what's going on beneath the surface. And I think there is some stuff there that we could at least surmise. I'll also say this. I don't think the analysis I'm about to give is intentional. Rather, I think it is a little more subconscious. Okay. And this brings me to the psychoanalysis of Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Before you even start, I just want to remind you that these are the same writers from Excellent Adventure who kidnapped Sidmund Freud and had him make a hot dog or a corn dog joke in a mall. So I wouldn't necessarily jump to say that it's unintentional that there would be any psychoanalysis to it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know if my analysis will hold up under intense scrutiny. It may fall apart. I'm, I'm saying that. Totally. Just walk with me on this adventure and see if it's real. Absolutely. Let's understand all of the events of Bill and Ted's bogus journey, save for them almost not making it into the Battle of the Bands, to them playing the Battle of the Bands with their children and their wives. All of the events is in between as symbolic. As none of them are literal, none of that actually happened to their characters. Well, okay. And so the reason I want to do that is I think that's the best way to understand, at the very least, death and why death is in this movie. It might not be the best way to understand every aspect of it. So our man, friend of our podcast, Sigmund Freud, as you mentioned, he had several theories of the psyche, one of which was that there are two opposing drives present in all humans— First is Eros, which is our drive towards love, and included in love is the love of another person, as well as pleasure and the act of sex and the ability to procreate. The other is Thanatos, which he took both of these from Greek mythology, and Thanatos is our drive to death, the understanding that we will all die. It is our drive towards self-destruction. It is the innate part of our psychology that wants to see us as de decaying organic matter about to make our way back to inorganic matter. And if we see Bill and Ted after they almost get rejected from the Battle of the Bands, we see these drives within them psychologically out of whack. They're very much focused on their, their presumably their soon-to-be fiancés. They're focused on their failures. They have a father figure 
and a mother figure that they share, a representation of a latent Oedipal complex within both of them. Right. They're both sexually attracted to their stepmother, but the maternal figure becomes a sexual figure to them. And the father figures are there to just punish and destroy and to repress their arrows, their desire for love. And why do they want to win this battle of bands? Well, yeah, they told they had a destiny of changing the world, but they really just want money so that they can get married. The Battle of the Bands is the conduit to fulfilling their drive towards Eros. And since all of their focus is on the drive towards Eros, they have repressed their Thanatos. Well, okay. With Thanatos being repressed, then comes out Evil Bill and Ted which are not literal in this sense, but they are then, they are still the living embody of Bill and Ted, the egos that we see. But since they have repressed their Thanatos, out comes their death drive manifest. And this gets them psychologically out of whack. They are um, rude and mean and sexually aggressive towards their girlfriends. They're destroying their apartment. They don't even care anymore about uh, succeeding in the Battle of the Bands. They are purely beings of destruction and in particular self-destruction. They are Bill and Ted without Eros and all Thanatos. I think that's really interesting because on one level, we're just looking at the uh, you know classic evil twin archetype or the evil twin trope. But if we read it with this sort of psychoanalytical lens, those are the first Bill and Ted's that we see in the movie are the robot Bill and Ted's. We don't even see the real ones until several minutes in. And uh, if we just read that as this is another side of them, uh, then we can dig kind of deeply into Freud's idea that much of the problems with society were due to repressed emotions and repressed uh, uh, impulses. And then the Bill and Ted that we see throughout the adventure are going through their own subconscious. They're not traveling actually in the underworld. They're traveling right. through their own mind. So in their own minds, what do they encounter? They encounter their own father and authority figures that they try to possess. Then they go right to the mother figure, which they also then try to intervene with the seance. They are literally getting over their Oedipal complex yeah. symbolically right oh, in wow. front of us. When they fail, what happens? Their super ego, their drive to morality is out of whack, and they have to punish themselves by sending themselves into the depths of hell in which their own horrible childhood memories and their own fears are being enacted upon them, manifesting in the grandmother, the Easter bunny, and then the, you know, the colonel, uh, the colonel, I forget his name, Colonel Oates, Colonel Oates. Thank you. Manifesting in these three things, Colonel Oates, which is the adolescent fear. And then as they go deeper into their own subconscious, they see the two childhood fears in the Easter bunny and the grandmother. It is only until they accept that they must reconcile with Thanatos, that they are free from this subconscious prison. And then they end up getting to then meet their own death drive face to face. Since you can't literally conquer death, even the ancient mythology said you can't conquer death. We all know, but symbolically they can bring their Thanatos drive out of their subconscious into their conscious and reconcile with the fact that a, they will die and B they have to live responsibly 
because they now know they will die. Time is not permanent. They only have so much of it. Then we get to the, the, we get to their experience in heaven where they get their moment of enlightenment. We get to see both Eros and Thanatos represented in harmony in station and station the alien, the, the creature from the other world helps build the conduit by which they will defeat their um, pure Thanatos drive represented in the evil twins. And how do they do that? They control empty vessels. They are able to manipulate their own consciousness so that they can overcome the, the, the Thanatos drive manifest in the, um, in the evil Bill and Ted. So that what can they do with the actual death drive? Make beautiful music with it. Yeah. By making beautiful music. And what do they get once they have defeated this, this, this death drive out of whack? Once they bring their arrows and they bring their Thanatos in harmony, they get to have children with their wives. They get to be complete and full actualized selves. And they make music with death rather than running from it, rather than cheating it. It's about them accepting that and accepting that they are innately very like they are both very much driven into the Eros drive, but they have to bring Thanatos in harmony. Otherwise another evil Bill and Ted will pop up and try to destroy them. Yeah. And, and Thanatos and death has to be in the band. Death has to be behind them playing bass. There has to be a memento mori, if you will, a reminder that you will die in order to keep their, uh, their Eros impulse in check. I also love that uh, in order to defeat the bad robot usses, they say, let's build good robot usses. Uh, it's just, it's so simple and so stupid, but it works because what they're building is a super ego, right? They're mm -hmm. building a regulator that is an intermediary between themselves and their evil selves. And it turns out to be just what is needed to defeat their, uh, you know, their worst impulses. Oh, that's an interesting way. So I look, I love the way that you looked at it there, because if you look at the robots as their super ego, them as the ego, and then the evil robots as the id, that right. also works. I looked at it as the evil selves are Thanatos yeah. And they need to reconcile the fact that they've never confronted Thanatos, their own, their own death drive before right. they've lived purely in arrows, but that's a totally apt psychoanalytical way to look at it. And still Freud. It all comes back to Freud. Yeah. And I think that's a fun way to understand why death belongs in this movie at all. Yeah. Because when I first rewatched it and I looked at back at it, I'm like, man, death just sticks out in this. Yeah. It's fun that they beat death at a game, but like, why is death here? And it took me a while. And I'm like, I think that's why, because they need to accept the fact that they're going to die They They live their life on the pleasure and arrows drive and have not reconciled with their own innate subconscious Thanatos drive. I think that is absolutely a fair reading of it, because if we look at it, the, the, the first movie was set in 1988 and this movie's in 1993. There was five years that have passed They've been told there's this great destiny for them, and yet they haven't done anything to actually achieve that. They haven't taken a single guitar lesson. So it's like they feel like they're going to live forever. They've been told that this is how things go. So if they just, you know, sit back and watch some Star Trek, it will happen. It will unfold. And it takes them 
uh, being confronted by the reality of the fact that they are going to die, whether they achieve their goal or not, to actually get them to buckle down and learn to play guitar. Uh, and I think that's a lesson that we can all take from this is like, even if we feel like we're destined for greatness, you got to fucking get off the couch once in a while. Um, you know, it's, it's okay to, it's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to take the small pleasures. It's okay to take your time with things. You don't have to do things right away. But if five years from now, you're still like, I want to make that podcast or I want to write that song, then you're probably not doing it right. Um, so that's something that we can all learn from that. Totally. Just remember 100% agree with that. Another, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about death, I think, because He's the other character on the, uh, you know, on the cover of this movie. Uh, it's Bill and Ted and Death. Uh, he is the third great character uh, in this uh, two-hander. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the image of the Grim Reaper and what he has represented throughout the ages, if that's okay with you. Totally okay. Let's do it. So uh, I want to dip back to the seventh seal for just a moment uh, because there's another image near the end of that movie uh, where the Reaper takes hands with a number of people and they sort of dance across the landscape uh, as we're hearing a poetic last couple of lines. It's a really striking image, uh, but it has roots in the late Middle Ages and it's called the Danse Macabre or the Dance with Death in French, or Dance of Death. Uh, it's an artistic motif that started to pop up around Europe in around 1424 in the 15th century. So this is after the ravages of the plague in the Hundred Years' War. Now, depictions of the Danse Macabre are usually, you'll see the personification of death, either the Grim Reaper or a skeleton or a number of skeletons, linking arms and reveling with several people. There will be peasants, there will be kings, there will be merchants, children, laborers, people from all walks of life, arm in arm with these skeletons as they dance their way to the graves. And it's a, it's a classic memento mori, it, uh, a reminder that you will die. It depicts the universality of death. It says, no matter your station in life, you will die. And uh, there's the similar line in Bill and Ted's bogus journey during the Reaper rap when uh, death takes the microphone and puts away the, uh, the bass he says, sooner or later, you'll dance with the Reaper. Uh, part of what I think is so alluring about uh, this, this image, about this artistic image, and what's so um, kind of confusing and compelling about it is that dancing is an act of joy. Dancing is, is an act of entertainment and amusement, but death is, of course, not to be desired. So why would these two things be side by side? I think... While it's a, uh, a reminder of your mortality, the uh, Danse Macabre is also saying, uh, you know, take that last hurrah when you can. Uh, even though we're all on the way to the grave, we can continue to dance. We can, you know, take that, you know, desperate last gasp, uh, desperate last chance to smell the roses. Uh, and I think it says that you can live side by side with, death and with the knowledge of your death and your mortality and also, you know, celebrate rock and roll and also continue to enjoy yourself and continue to enjoy your life and find a kind of meaning in it. Um, you know, it makes me again think of Sisyphus, the absurd hero 
who is doomed to push a boulder up a hill for the rest of his life. But we can imagine that at some point he finds even the smallest amount of Zen or pleasure in it. You know, when we think of the midnight myth and its search for the universal story and what that universal story is, and in many ways we were inspired by Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces. Um, And that was one of our biggest inspirations. But in reality, the answer to what the universal story is, is much simpler. It's death. And it's the fact that as far as we're aware, we're the only species in the universe, at the very least on planet Earth, that's aware that it will die. Right. We're the only living creatures that have to reconcile with the fact that we're going to die. Maybe there are other very smart animals on the planet that do, but we're not sure of that. The only thing we are sure of is that we know that we're going to die. And death is the universal story. And because it's the universal story, we have to reconcile with it. And Bogus Journey is very much about that reconciliation, about finding a way to understand that your time is limited and what do you do in the face of it. And though most of us won't have the destiny to reshape society into Middle East peace and the end of air pollution, we do make we do have a part to contribute to it, and we do have an obligation to be bold in the face of the challenges of life to contribute that part. And pretty much every culture has a personification of death, right? Every culture has some way that they have conceived this figure, whether it's the Grim Reaper that we think of today as a typically masculine form uh, or sexless form in a black cloak with a scythe reaping uh you know the the crop of our lives or a banshee in irish mythology or uh you know even the black dog from scottish lore or hell from norse mythology they're everywhere there's all kinds of versions of this but they are um they're, they're psychopomps so there are figures that guide you to the other side but don't judge you uh just as the dance macabre the dance of death uh doesn't discriminate between who it takes on that you know hokey pokey Uh, it says to us that we are all the same at the end of the day. We're all going to the same place. And in an inverse of another archetype that we've talked about on the podcast, the magician who takes you, uh, you know, from the first stage of your life and across the threshold into the next stage of your life, uh, this character guides you across the final threshold without judgment, without saying, you know, you did this right or you did this wrong. That's reserved for other deities and other mythological figures. Death is just like, take my hand. Let's dance on to the grave. We all got to go there. Let's go join the party. Totally. Yeah. um, My Egyptian mythology is a little hazy, but if I remember correctly, I think Anubis plays that role for the Egyptians. That sounds right. That does sound right. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts you want to wrap this up with? Um, just a couple of fun sort of things to point out about Bill and Ted's bogus journey, because I think we have to end with the fun after we've been talking about uh, death for an hour or so. Um, and that's that there's a clear influence of Star Trek on uh, this movie, which I think is is really interesting. Uh, we obviously see Bill and Ted watching Star Trek in one of uh, the scenes early in the film, and they're watching a, a scene from the uh, episode Arena, which features uh, Captain Kirk 
being sort of stranded on this desert planet where he has to face off with, uh, you know, a rival captain who's a reptilian figure called the Gorn, and they go trial by combat, and whoever's uh, sh- whoever wins gets to leave with their ship, and the other one obviously dies, and their ship is destroyed. So it's a little bit of a mirror of the, uh, you know, dance with death or the game with death, and it's included because they ended up shooting the scene of Bill and Ted's evil robot twins knocking them off the cliff at the same location on that same jagged rock. Uh, it's called Vasquez rock. What? Um, yeah. That's awesome. As in that, uh, as in that episode uh, of star Trek, they were Very shooting cool. there to sort of stand in for Utah. And they were like, wait a second. I think that was in a star Trek episode. Um, and the other star Trek connection is that Bill and Ted university is located Uh, It's being shot at the same place that later was the location for Starfleet and I think Star Trek Voyager. So there were a couple of Star Trek references there, but obviously last week we talked about the influence of classic sci-fi, H.G. Wells and Arthur C. Clarke on the Bill and Ted franchise. So it was nice to see a little reach out, even though I would call Bogus Journey fantasy rather than the sort of sci-fi roots of excellent adventure. Uh, I think it was nice to see them, you know, pay homage to classic sci-fi again. Uh, But yeah, I just think the Star Trek uh, connections are cool there. Can I throw a little bit of a Midnight Myth boomerang here at at the end? Yeah, of course. If you're new to the podcast, and hopefully you are, the Midnight Myth boomerang is where we throw out a subject that we weren't really preparing for. And this harkens back to early in the uh, start of the Midnight Myth. I meant to say, I want to throw a curveball, but I said, I want to throw a boomerang. Yeah. So let me throw a boomerang in here. Um, Which movie do you like more and why? Okay. Um, So this isn't a difficult question, but I like, I I always like want to hold back with my answer. Um, I do think Excellent Adventure is a better movie and I have seen Excellent Adventure so many times I can't even tell you. And every time it gets better. Um, Bogus Journey, I think, like I said early in the podcast, is a bit of a mess, but I admire its ambition. Uh, I think the first time I saw it, I felt this way with Excellent Adventure too. I was like, wow, I didn't expect this to be so smart and interesting. I thought it was just going to be dumb. Um, And Bogus Journey, I was like, holy shit, this is existential. Bill and Ted just got existential. Um, so I, I was alarmed and disarmed by, you know, the quality of, of Bogus Journey, but I don't think as a movie it's as tight or as, um, you know, well executed as Excellent Adventure. I just admire it a great deal. You know, I largely agree with everything that you said there. I think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, there's a reason that started off a pop culture craze and sensation. And it was more than just, you know, Party on, dude, even though that's a big part of it. Yeah. But it was because it was a really well-executed movie, and it was really well thought out, and it had a really tight narrative structure, and it really delivers, and it really delivers on the characters. Whereas I would say Bogus Journey, not as much. It's not as tight. It's a little more absurd, and it's a little sillier when it's subject matter- is a little more serious. So it gets, it doubles down on silliness when there are like evil Bill and Ted's trying to rape women and murder people. And like, that's really serious subject matter. It's not as easy to make that silly 
I think because of that, it doesn't execute as well. Yeah. But it still has some really wacky, awesome, fun, great things. Um, just another call out here. We talked about this last week. They really were into making, you know, homosexual jokes. Homophobic jokes. Uh, yeah. Homophobic jokes. Yeah. yeah it was pardon just me. Casual yeah. hate speech there. And at least this time it was the evil version of Bill and Ted who did it. But, uh, you know, in the previous movie, it was regular Bill and Ted who did it. So it seems like they were just uh, not that concerned about what that, uh, you know, what that meant. Uh, and, you know, something that I, I desperately hope and believe will not be part of a third one. Um, I hope so too. Yeah. But it has been a ton of fun revisiting these films, revisiting these movies, discussing and talking about them with you guys. Tell us what you think. Um, I love them both. I definitely think Excellent Adventure is the better of the two. But um, if you think otherwise, tell me why. Yeah. You know, the one thing, the the final reflection that I want to share here is that I think the reason Bill and Ted stick with us and the reason we have been lobbying for a, a third sequel uh, for so long and the reason we're so excited to see them come back uh, is that this series gets by on the charisma and the likability and the just inherent goodness of its heroes, of Bill and Ted, the characters themselves. Uh, I think they both exemplify, uh, you know, the archetype of the fool, but the wise fool, uh, which goes back again through mythology and folklore. Uh, you know, characters who maybe don't have the book smarts, maybe don't even have the street smarts, you know, don't have the qualities that we usually assess people for in order to determine whether or not they will be successful. But they do have good open hearts and a sensitivity that is beyond what we would expect from them. Uh, and just like, you know, the wise fool characters throughout fairy tale and folklore, they get rewarded for having good hearts. They get rewarded for having empathy, even though their naivete seems to preclude them from being successful in life. They get the reward of the beautiful princesses. They get the reward of the successful band and they get the reward of being the people who found a new society. Uh, and I like seeing that, uh, that trope get new life and I, I love Bill and Ted. I think they are great characters, and I cannot wait to see what they do next. Cool. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind.